you'd all please stand, if you have a Bible, if you could please turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at just two short verses right now, and then we're going to get into the Word. Um, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Thank you, Lord. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word, you may be seated. Father, what we need to know today, help us to know it. May our hearts be tender before you. As we visit something, Lord, that is all too common for those of us who have known you for a good long time, open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to put aside all of the things that we think, all of the things that we assume, all of those parts of us that speak to ourselves and says, we already know, um, let's hope somebody else learns something. I pray, Lord, that as I learn something this week, that we would all take away from this message something that we can apply in our lives and get a deeper understanding of the passionate love that you have for us seen in and through Jesus who walked a road that we deserve to walk, who suffered a cross that we deserve to suffer, because that was part of your plan, to bring us back to you. Your love and your passion and your mercy and your justice was all found in that moment. Help us to understand what we step into when we talk about baptism, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I know it's a short passage. We're probably not going to spend an incredible amount of time taking a look at those two verses, but that is where we landed this morning. You guys want us to take a look at this primarily for us to focus on, that baptism, baptism itself, again, is born out of the long history and the story of God's activity in and through his people. It's not just something that we do. It is born out of the long history and the story of God's activity in and through his people. As with all Christian acts that we do, baptism is one of obedience, and it's done in faith by the believer because of what God has done. And last week, we got going in this short series. I've changed the name from Church Life to Life Together, mostly because I like that better, and I can remember that a lot easier. Um, we started by taking a look at communion, something that we, we do once a month here, and why it is uh, we, we participate in that. We're asking the question, again, why is it we do what we do within the church context? Settling into the truth that these things the church does are deeply rooted in the history of the people of Israel. These aren't something that were invented by Jesus, but deeply rooted in the history of the people of Israel. And they found their fulfillment in and through Jesus of Nazareth. That's the point. It wasn't something that he brought about to say, this is what I want you to do now. Everything was pointing to Jesus, and it all found its fulfillment in and through him and his life. And in looking this week at baptism, we have to discover, in your study of it, if we take our time to do so, putting aside all of the preconceived notions that we have and all of the understandings that we have, we have to discover that couched within the command that we are to be baptized are many things that can become a really big challenge for us as followers of Jesus. 
Because you see, in the midst of the Exodus, where they found this story and where they understood what this was all about, God's people, as they were leaving Egypt in the text that we read this morning, took very little time, actually, in becoming extremely critical of their leader now that they weren't slaves anymore. You see, Moses just does what he was supposed to do, and now they find themselves all on the edge of the Red Sea. Many of us know this story, but they're trapped. They're trapped with water in front of them and a big army behind them, complaining and wishing they were what? Back in Egypt, where everything was oh so much better. Change. An unsettledness of heart and an unsettledness of what's going to happen next and the feeling of being out of control of the events and the issues that you've got going on in your life can lead to grumbling and complaining on the part of the people that are being moved into doing something. Maybe that's just me, but I think human nature bears that out if we think about that for a minute. Now, many of you know this story from Exodus 14 where the people are hemmed in on both sides and the challenge to fear not Stand still and watch God work is presented to them. It's not something any of us are very comfortable with doing. Fear not, stand still, watch God work. No, 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 we got to fix it ourselves. we got to get moving. we got to figure out how this is going to work. What are we supposed to do? Because this is not the normal thing to do. When someone's coming at you who wants to hurt you, what do you typically do? Fight or flee. Fight or flee. The last thing you do is stand still and watch to see what's going to happen. But this is what they're being told to do. Now, digging deeper into this story, we discover this notion of obedience. Obedience is the undercurrent here with baptism. Doing what you are commanded to do, even when it looks like it might be the wrong thing to do, the frightening thing to do, the very weird thing to do, and most importantly, the most difficult thing to do that you are presented with. This became my focus for study this week when it came to baptism, as well as my focus for application for us all as we take a look at this whole process of baptism. Because frankly, baptism in and of itself is quite easy to explain on the surface. You want to skip that rock across the pond, as it were, it won't take you too long. It's simply what we do is the outward expression of what it is God has done on the inside of us. Anyone who's a Christian for more than two weeks understands that's why we do baptism. It's the outward expression of what God has done on the inside. Well, the question is, what exactly does that mean? What does that mean to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is? Well, that means that when you give your life to Jesus... You accept him for who he is, Lord and King. We have to remember, I say this all the time, our acceptance of Jesus as Lord and King doesn't make him Lord and King. It simply acknowledges what already is. Jesus is Lord and King whether we acknowledge it or not. We step into a whole new reality, however, when we do acknowledge that. The command to be baptized is the next thing for us to do. We find that in the scriptures. That can be seen in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip as he's leaving Jerusalem in the city. It's found again in Acts chapter 10 where Peter goes to Cornelius' house and all of a sudden he's preaching to all these Gentiles and bam, the Holy Spirit shows up and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter steps back and he says, well, you know, they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. What's going to keep us from baptizing these people in water? There are other examples throughout the book of Acts as well that show us that this is the next logical thing that you do when you step into a relationship with Jesus. But you see, the problem is is that we live in a very self-centered, post-truth, relativistic culture which defines things as they see fit. That becomes a problem. When God defines things as they ought to be, we can't define things as we see fit. That's where we run into problems. 
I read a quote this week in the Wall Street Journal from the speech that was given at the award show this past week. The most important thing that we have here in this country is your truth and what you do with it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Not the truth, but your truth. Hey, how do we define that, you see? So we have to be careful. And living in that type of culture, we run into problems. We find that with feet firmly planted in midair, people try to ground themselves while having absolutely nothing to ground themselves to. This is why the scriptures are so important for us to understand. Part of our purpose here as a community of believers is not only to understand for ourselves what the scriptures say, referencing our mission statement that we are to be a discipleship-building, community-driven body of believers. That's not where it ends, you see. The thought that once we accept Jesus and then we begin reading the scriptures somehow means we have arrived at the end all. That's not the case. We're always to be learning. It's not altogether true that that's how it is. Growing in obedience to the things which God shows us each and every day through the Holy Spirit is what we will spend the rest of our lives working on. Doing so, as Paul says in Philippians, how? In fear and trembling. We are working out what God has worked in us. And that's going to take the rest of our days to do. It doesn't happen in one swell or one fell swoop and all of a sudden everything's good. You see that we are then saved and our job is to stay that way as if we have any capacity to keep ourselves saved because we couldn't get ourselves saved. But that's a story for another time. And then try by God's grace to get others to obey, which is a call that we have to share the gospel of Jesus. You see, given the culture that we live in, we tend to get a little bit afraid at that point, and then we begin to fight to protect our own. We'd rather have really high walls instead of opportunity to be able to share with people in order to keep those people out until they look like us people, whatever us people may look like. You need to remember, I remind myself this all the time, I want to remind you that is not the biblical call for Christian living. It's not the biblical call for Christian living. And again, that's not to be critical but it's to look honestly at how churches, especially here in the Northeast, tend toward functioning. Shrink things down as much as we can and protect what we have and hope that the world doesn't creep in upon us. Being a body of believers who lift up the name of Jesus in word and action means we are here to worship God, to be discipled in the word, to grow as his community. Within that is obedience to everything God calls us to. Baptism being one of those things. And we do so as a community. Now Bonhoeffer puts it this way, and I couldn't figure out how to say it better, so I quote somebody who's already said it because it makes me sound smart. But here we go. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize. It's not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray for it and hope for it. When we understand that it is not an ideal that we realize as if we are working to become that perfect church. Fire me if you want a perfect church because if I'm here, we're, we're in trouble 
It's not something we realize. Bonhoeffer realized that, that in Jesus, we have the ability to do something that God has given us. We can step into that, you see. So in other words, for our benefit, for our benefit here, God has knit us together. We would not normally gather here together as a group of people just to have a cup of coffee on a Tuesday because we just want to gather with a group of people. But God has specifically knit us together within this community. So to be healthy then means to act, to behave, and to grow forward in a particular way. And that's his way. And we do so, first off, by obedience to the commands that he gives us. If we can't be obedient in the easy things... What makes any of us think we can be obedient in the tough things, in the hard things? That's the challenge that we all have. Our task as individual Christians and then as a community is to be obedient. Obedient. Starting first with a command to love one another. That's what we're called to do. And I say this because we discover that in the story of baptism, the new creation life that Jesus demands is a new way of walking in this world. It's not the old way. We do so together as his people and as individuals. That's what we're called to. You see, his actions during and after his baptism set the example for us. And it's good for us to look at those things. The kingdom of God had arrived. It wasn't just another one-off thing where he got dunked in the Jordan River. The kingdom of God had arrived. And if that was the case, it was never to be business as usual again. Once Jesus showed up and said, this is the direction we're going, nothing would ever be the same. And he sealed that deal when he walked out of the tomb. So no matter how hard some tried to make it so that it was the same way, it was never going to be that way again. Once you let the lion out, you can't get him back in the cage. Now realizing this today means then and only then are we able to, in humility, in gentleness, in love, and bathed in the grace of God, head out into the community to be active agents in God's plan to spread the light in dark places. Bob prayed this morning for our leaders that we would be people that would have an impact and affect this world. That's why we're left here. Not to hide away and hope that we don't get contaminated, but that we can go out into the dark places and be that light in a place that needs the truth of the gospel. That says that Jesus has a better way than all of the nonsense that's going on. That's what we're called to. If that's a frightening thought, it should be, because it is. It is even to me. But that's what we're called to, you see. The world in which we live needs genuinely humble Christians who understand that it is only by God's grace that we stand. There was nothing that I brought to the table that was worth anything in order for Jesus to say, he's mine. The father looked at me and said, I see my son's work and I see him in you. Therefore, you're mine. Nothing I could do or you could do, which means it is only by God's grace, only by God's grace that we stand. That it is in Jesus, not in the governments that find themselves demanding that we do certain things, not in certain leaders who think that they can change the world and save the world. We pray for them because at best they are broken people just like we are, 
Neither are we here to maintain our little fort and our little corner of the world until Jesus comes back again. We aren't to do that. I say that all the time because I have to remind myself of that all the time. That tends to be our natural inclination to step back instead of be challenged to move out. We are to be on the offensive, clothed with the love of God, being obedient to him and sharing about his son Jesus. And Jesus launched his ministry in the Jordan River doing something that he didn't need to do. But that story is deeply rooted where we started this morning in Exodus chapter 14 in the history of the people of Israel. That's where the story is actually told. Right after the great exodus from Egypt that we learned about last week, the people find themselves again on the edge of the Red Sea facing that great Egyptian army. Whatever Egyptian army you've got in your life, put yourself in that spot. What is the Egyptian army in your life that's facing one direction and the Lord's got a challenge for you in another? Think on that. You see, because having decided that he was God and God was not, Pharaoh got himself all wound up again, and he sets out to bring these rebellious people back home. This is not a smart man. If you've read this story, he's not a smart man. Exodus 14 is where you find all of this, and I leave that to you to leave when you go home today or throughout the week. Look it up. It is one of the most deeply symbolic moments for God's people. It's one of the most important things for us to understand. On the banks of the Red Sea, they're grumbling against Moses. Moses turns and says, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to handle that? God tells Moses that all they have to do is stand and watch. Oh, that's good. They're already mad. I'm supposed to tell them stand and watch? All right. That is an unnatural thing for human beings to do. It's an unnatural thing for me to do. When I see something broken, I want to fix it to the point of irritating everybody in the state. Standing and watching is not something that comes natural to most of us. But obedience to God in the face of uncertain times sometimes means that we stand still. We stand still. Why? Because he is God and he said to do so. So they did so. And we discover that God, that covenant-fulfilling promise-keeping God did just what he said he would because once they had settled themselves down so that they could hear what their next assignment was. It's really hard to hear what you're supposed to do when you're yammering all the time. God never speaks very loudly. It's always in a quiet voice and in order to hear that quiet voice, we need to be still. He says to Moses, lift up your staff. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind All night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That's cool. That's cool. Understand this. The deliverance of God through obedience to God by faith in God. The Red Sea didn't part because of some sort of magic or any kind of foolish thinking or wishful thinking or whatever it may have been. Deliverance of God through obedience to God by faith in God. They did what they were told. He brought deliverance about because they believed that he said he would and therefore he would. And he did. Nothing at all has changed over these four, five, six, seven, ten, twenty million years, whatever it is. Nothing has changed in the economy of God. He operates the same way. This then... This passing through the sea, as it were, this baptism, became the ritual for any Gentile who wished at that moment in time to convert to Judaism. This was just simply what you did. 
You had to go through the waters of baptism, just like the people of Israel did in leaving Egypt, for the washing away of sin as a way that told every single person that was there watching you that you were turning to the God of the Hebrews and away from all of the other stuff, away from the certain death that awaited you. It's not a new thing for Jesus in the church that's being taught here. Again, he didn't invent these things as he went along, deeply rooted in God's story. But it is strange, when we get back into Luke chapter 3, it is strange that those who thought that they were already in as God's people find that they are now being called by this mouthy guy to the same repentance as the Gentiles are in preparation for the coming king. Luke chapter 3, halfway through verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's Luke 3, verses 2 through 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. All of a sudden... The very last of the Old Testament prophets, as it were, shows up and he begins to call God's people to repent and be baptized. Repent. Repent of your sin. Step into right relationship with God. Which, what's the next question that you would ask if you were already in or so you thought? Aren't we already right with God? After all, we are his people, aren't we? Right? He's the one. He delivered us up out of Egypt, all of that good stuff. Well, yes and no. Yes, you are his people. No, you are not obedient. You are not walking the way you're supposed to. You see, you've got this book all memorized. You got it off by heart. You can tell people exactly what it is they're supposed to do and how it is they're supposed to do it. You've got it all right here. But right here, not so good. You take a look at Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. That's not on our slides, but this just came to me as I was reviewing my notes this morning. I want to read this to you. Jesus says this to those who thought they were in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's a kind way of talking to people. Always gets invited back that way. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, you're doing the easy stuff. You toss your money in the bucket. You give the tenth of everything you're supposed to, which we'll learn next week. Invite your friends, it'll be great. You do all that stuff. But when it comes to looking at somebody who's incredibly broken, not so good. Why? Because they're not one of us. Something for us to just kind of contemplate and rest on and think on. You see, I'm calling you, John says, to prepare you for the one who will change you from the inside out. It's not an external thing that you take care of and then you're good. Come, be baptized, be washed clean, and you will be made ready for your king. You see, God is a God of wrath. God is a God of justice. But what you see in the Gospels is that God is a passionate God of love for humanity. John comes along and he's telling them to repent. Why? Not so that they can just take off and, and end up in the wrong direction, but rather that they can come home. God wants to prepare you for what he's got coming down the road. 
His justice will be handed out on the cross, yes. But for right now, his focus is getting people's hearts ready. We want to make you ready for the king. Well, what king? Well, the one Malachi told you about, that one. You remember the last book in the Old Testament, the last prophet? I'm here baptizing in order to make you people ready for when he comes. I'm not him, but I'm trying to make you ready for when he comes. Come back to me. That's the call that God gave through John as his actions echo the words of Malachi. From the days of your fathers, this is Malachi 3, verses 7, uh, the first two parts of it. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I'm going to make you toast. It's not what it says, is it? It says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Come down into the river, be washed clean. Baptism is the first order of obedience when you come into relationship with Jesus Christ. First order of obedience. Why? Because God, through Moses, delivered his people from bondage through the Passover, we learned last week. Thus, we have communion. And then he delivered them to freedom through the Red Sea baptism. Thus, we have baptism. You see, they went into that sea on one side as slaves to Pharaoh. And they left and they came out of the other side of that sea as freed people of God. Now, they had a lot of work that needed to happen, but they were freed people of God. They passed through the Red Sea. Now, I don't think it's necessary. I've had people tell me, I don't really feel like I need to do that. Okay, well, then you might want to go back and read your Bible a little bit more. I can't get around this. I don't want to do it in front of anyone. Can't we kind of take care of this hidden away somewhere in a closet, maybe in a bathtub where nobody can watch and nobody can see? Mm, sure you can. If you are in a place where being baptized will cost you your life, I would say sure. But here where we live in, in America, where the biggest right that is infringed upon you is you can't pray at the school or in the park? No, I don't think so. A public profession of faith means a public baptism. Now, I know this has become a big thing for some people. So let's think on this for a minute. Our age and our self-focused culture, self-absorbed, it's all about me, what I want, what I want, wants God and wants his commands on our terms. On our terms. That's backwards. That's how we want it, you see. Can't do that. So I'll be baptized, but I want it done this way and not that way. I've heard that. Okay, argue with the guy that wrote the book. That's not how it works. Now, maybe for health reasons, health concerns... Absolutely. Things along those lines that make it very difficult to be able to do this type of stuff? Absolutely. Painfully introverted people? I've come across people who cannot get in front of a crowd without just being unable to function. Okay, we can take a look at that. And and things like that, we we work that out. We figure out how to do that so it's not some crisis moment. But for the, the person who has got nothing going on except I just want to do it my way, who has come to Christ and then defines for themselves how their life is going to look from that point going forward is starting off on the wrong foot. You don't come to Jesus and tell him how it's going to work. But we do, though. I think on that. Well, I'm not sure I really care for that one, Lord. I think maybe perhaps I ought to do it this way instead. No. Why do I say that? 
Well, for two reasons. You see, we need to look at baptism this way. Number one, God commanded it. And number two, Jesus set the example. Jesus set the example. If there was anyone on planet Earth ever in the history of humanity who didn't need to be baptized and cleansed of his sin, it was Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't need to do that. Three of the four gospel writers, if you read through the gospels, record that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, not because he needed it, but because it was the right thing to do in obedience to God's commands to his people. So if the Son of God isn't excused from being obedient to the commands of God, what makes any of us think that we can be excused from that? See, he sets the example for all people who would come after him. John had just finished his discourse in Luke chapter 3 about all of those people and how it is those folks were supposed to conduct them lives, their lives amongst their friends and amongst their fellow citizens. Don't take too much tax. You know, if you've got more than enough clothes, share with somebody who doesn't have any clothes. All of that stuff that we seem to think is a social justice piece, but we really need to take a look at as being deeply part of what it is to be a Christian. Jesus shows up. In the midst of that, and in, in John's gospel, he records this in John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now what did we learn last week? That's the Passover lamb, isn't it? John's identifying for us, here is your Passover lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He steps into the Jordan River to be baptized. Historical something that actually happened and deeply symbolic of the story of God for humanity going forward. You see, Jesus, our King, in these records, is living out in a very real way the story of the deliverance of God's people. None of this is separated. None of this is kind of parked over here and doesn't really have anything to do with this. He is literally living it out. You extend yourself out into Luke chapter 4 and you will discover that in a very microcosmic way, Jesus leaves the Jordan River. And he goes where? Out into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. Does that sound familiar? The wilderness wanderings for 40 years where he's tempted by the devil. Then he comes back in and he launches his ministry. Goes into the synagogue and says, boys, I'm it. He reads out of Isaiah 61, sets the stage and says, game on. The kingdom of God is here. None of this is separated. None of this is just a tangential thing. You see, John initially balked at baptizing Jesus, if you read the story. He's telling him that it was, I need it. Not you, Jesus. I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. Jesus looked at him and said this in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15. He answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John didn't want to baptize him because he knew that Jesus didn't need it. Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is the example that we set. This is to fulfill all righteousness. This is so everybody sees this is how it's supposed to be done. Why did John consent? Obedience to his king. Obedience to his king. Why do we consent? Why do we get baptized? For the same reason. Obedience to our king. Does being baptized save us? No. Doesn't. It doesn't save us at all. It does, however, declare to those who see who owns our heart when we step into that water and we go through the waters of baptism. This is, again, 
the outworking of our obedience to the grace of God poured out upon us. You see, N.T. Wright sets this scene very well as he takes a look at Luke's recording of this moment, and I do think it's good for us to take a listen to. John the Baptist doesn't seem to have wasted time and breath going into the details of ethical debate. We like to do that. Modes, how we do this, why we do this, where we do this, when we do this, how old, is it infant, is it not infant, all that stuff, and then nobody gets baptized and everybody's angry at each other because nobody can make up their mind how it works. John the Baptist doesn't seem to have wasted time and breath going into the details of the ethical debate. It's not for him of the learned discussions of particular cases, the small details of law that take the time and the energy away from actually doing anything about the way this world is and the way one's own life is. John refused to allow himself to get sucked down into the chaos and the silliness of the day and he stayed focused on what it was God had him to do. That this world is inherently broken. This world is in chaos. This world needs the God of all creation. And we are his people who bring that forward. And if we get stuck in all the muck and the mire, the world spirals out of control continually. Because we are God's people for God's world. Wright continues that if people were coming for baptism... They were committing themselves to be God's Israel, the light of the world, the people in whom God's justice would be seen by all. The waters of baptism let the whole world know that I belong to God and I am going to be his person for his world, living his way, even if it costs me. You see, it is a heart issue followed by action. A heart issue followed by action. So baptism, as we learned last week, is so much more than about being dunked and getting wet. As well, it's about much more than making a statement to the crowd, although at the very least, it is that. It's about obedience to our king who says that we are his people for his world and we will live a particular way in that world and among the people who live in that world, not away from it not away from it. See, so in public and in front of everyone, before he started his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth steps down into the Jordan River and it's recorded for us here in Luke that now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also was, had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and the voice came from heaven, what? You are my beloved son with you I am well pleased now the ministry of reconciliation begins at that point so guess what that means you are we've been learning this in Ephesians he looks at you and he says to you you are my beloved daughter with you I am well pleased you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased. We learn to walk in that obedience as difficult as it is. As difficult as that is. You see, because he sets the example for us. And baptism, while it symbolizes the dying to ourself and the living to Jesus, it's exactly that. It's obediently living for Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever the direction, and whatever the call. 
What does he have for you? Here? Your next assignment? Health challenge? Familial challenges? Marriage challenges? Work challenges? How do we step into being obedient, working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Because you see, the beautiful thing about the scriptures, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, and I quoted it last week, and I can't get away from this. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. There is not one thing in this book that was a promise to the people of God that has not been fulfilled and will not be fulfilled in and through Jesus. And he calls you his own. See, the creator God kept his covenant promise by sending his son Jesus to his people in exile in order to once again bring about a brand new exodus. That's what's going on here. This is the new exodus echoing the old. It all started with his baptism and his identification of who it was he was. And then he was launched into the world on mission, on task, to do what it was he was called to do, ultimately ending at the cross. If I could have the worship team come up and those who are going to pray, please take your spots. As we close this morning and the worship team just gets prepared to, to sing this last song. I want to encourage you to read chapter 4 of Luke. I referenced it a couple of minutes ago. I would encourage you to read that because this whole story of exodus and exile continues. It continues. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and then he goes in and he, he takes his place in the synagogue and, and he launches exactly what it is he's supposed to do. And I want to leave you with this to pray about as you take a look at that. Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was 100% man. Which meant that the challenges that you and I face, the struggles that we have, the fears that we encounter, when we kind of balk at what it is God has for us to do, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in obedience to God through Jesus, he gives us the ability and the capacity to step into those new things that he challenges us to do. Jesus had to be frightened going into his hometown synagogue, looking at all those people and reading Isaiah 61 going, this is me. This is me. Today, and you're hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. I've been baptized been out in the desert, 40 days, no food, challenged by the devil. Doesn't get any worse than that. Now I'm telling you that the kingdom of God, behold, is suddenly upon you. Now, we are his people for his world. I say that all the time. If we focus that way, we find that all of those small things that John the Baptist didn't care about tend to get pushed off to the side. And we start looking at, okay, Lord, how am I supposed to do what I'm supposed to do today? And in your strength, help me to do so. Let's stand.